Thanks, Morgan. Thanks, Emily. If you remember, if you're here last week, you know we're in John chapter 10 talking about the Good Shepherd. Um, maybe some of those songs, if you had that in mind, I've, of course I've been preparing all week, so um, those songs really fit in so many ways, that, uh, that truth about God and Jesus being our Good Shepherd. And uh, you sing those and, and say those words in that context, it's, it's pretty powerful. We'll turn, if you would, now to John chapter 10. And uh, we, we just got to start into verse 11. We just got that first phrase last week. Uh, after Jesus had been explaining that he's not just a teacher. Uh, he's not just some rabbi that uh, has happened along. Uh, but he's talked to the people who are listening to understand that just like he has acted with the man who had been born blind, uh, who he'd come in and cared for, taken care of his needs, and really in essence said, come follow me. He is a shepherd for all those who will be part of his flock. Uh, I talked about how there are those who want to come in, come over the top, uh, to hurt, to kill, to damage the sheep. But he is the good shepherd. He is the one who is the door to the sheep. Who's, who's, he himself stands in that opening between what is dangerous outside the fold and the sheep themselves. He is the one who said, I am the good shepherd claiming a title that's been used for God for centuries by the Jewish people, and in a lesser way to the, to the leaders of Israel who were to shepherd and care for the flock under the guidance of the shepherd. And he continues now to explain who is this good shepherd and what is he like? Why call him good as he makes this declaration, which again, of course, is another one of his great I am statements, those, those statements where he claims the name Yahweh or I am for himself, but then describes it in more detail. So in this case, I am the good shepherd. Who is this good shepherd? So follow along. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down 
on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So Jesus, again, like I said, he says, I am the good shepherd. And you might remember right before that, he's saying that in contrast to the thief. In verse 10, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. He said, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. That's why we continued last week right through that verse division there. Because really he's saying, yeah, there's the thief, kills, steals, destroys, but I am the good shepherd. I am the one who wants the sheep to have life that is full, that is overflowing, that is what I designed it to be in the first place as their creator. said to be the good shepherd. Here he's not just claiming to be one of many shepherds that Israel has had over the years. Some of them good, some of them bad. Some being praised for what they did, others strongly rebuked, like in Isaiah 34 and Jeremiah 23 and other places where those who were supposed to be taking care of the sheep were not. In fact, they were letting the sheep be hurt and killed. They were taking the sheep for themselves. They were just benefiting from the sheep without doing the work. Ultimately, he's saying he is the one and only shepherd, Yahweh himself, as taught throughout the Old Testament. In a sense, he's using the, the, the same structure that Peter will use later when Peter talked about the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5 being the under-shepherds, and Jesus being the great shepherd. Jesus being the chief shepherd. Others have shepherded under him, shepherded under him, but he is the one true shepherd. Again, Jesus saying, I am this I am who is the good shepherd. But why call him good? Well, Jesus ex begins explaining that immediately in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what distinguishes him from thieves and false shepherds. He's willing to put his life on the line for what is best for the sheep. The others are all watching the sheep for their own selfish interests and what they can get. By contrast, the good shepherd actually chooses to sacrifice himself for the sheep. Like David, remember, who fought a bear and fought a lion for the sake of the sheep. Let's think about what he describes back in, in, in the book of 1 Samuel and how there was, there was, you know, the animal came and grabbed one of the sheep and he, he gets it, grabs the lion, you know, by the beard, fights the lion to the death and kills it, puts his very life on the lion because he's got one of the sheep. Jesus is saying, that's what I'm like. 
I'm going to actually lay my life on the line for you. I'm going to put myself between you, the sheep, and what threatens you. And the greatest threat is their own sin and its consequences. Spiritual blindness, death, and eternal punishment. He's already talked about being the light of the world, right? So he's here for your spiritual blindness. But also he's here to stand between you and death between you and eternal punishment, and between you and your enemies, as he's already been, been saying. I'll stand there. I will absorb what you can't absorb. I will take care of the problems that are coming to destroy you. And by contrast, in verses 12 and 13, he talks about the hired hand who is not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, who sees the wolf coming and says, I'm out of here. He protects for a price, not because he cares. The very nature of a hired hand is someone who is there uh, because he's paid. Right? For the sake of his income, he'll do what he's told in order to keep the income coming, right? I'll do these things for the sheep and those things for the sheep. Just keep the money coming in, right? However, verse 13 tells us he has no real care or concern for the sheep. It's just his job. Thankfully, the shepherd really does care. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, actually the same passage I just mentioned a moment ago, and it might be, you might find it interesting to do a study in 1 Peter 5 and the theme of a shepherd through that chapter. We're just going to look at verses 6 through 9. And uh, this is this is the same passage as I said, verse 4 talks about the chief shepherd. Uh, but then verse 6 in that same context says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here's where the caring comes in, in verse 7. Casting all your anxiety, or your version might say, all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Sounds like the shepherd caring for his sheep, doesn't it? Cast, throw your cares on the good shepherd. Yes, there are, the devil is out there, right? He wants to eat you alive, just like the predators that Jesus is talking back about back in chapter 10 of John. But the chief shepherd says, let me handle that. Toss that on me, because I truly do care about you. That's the heart of it. That's the difference, Jesus says, between me and the hired hands, the ones who are just in it because they're you know, that's their profession. That's how the, they keep the money coming in. It's a key thing to consider, by the way, also, if you're thinking of to someone else's or becoming a leader yourself. Does this person care for the ones who are protected? Or if I'm going to become a leader, do, do I really care for those who are going to be 
under my protection and under my feeding and under my care? Jesus says, that's the way I am, not like a hired hand. And so for those who then will shepherd under the chief shepherd, they need to have that same kind of care and, and of course, growing. Because no elder, no shepherd has that kind of care to the same degree that Jesus does, right? And so are they, are they heading in that direction? Are they growing in that? Is it becoming more and more a part of their character? Don't want to, to, to be a, a person who is the hired hand, right? Because the hired hand has no stake in the flock. Just is there, puts in his hours, leaves, and doesn't think about the sheep anymore, right? Jesus says, but I own the flock. It's mine. And ownership makes a great deal of difference. In, in the Old Testament, God speaks a number of times about Israel as his flock. They, they are my sheep, he says, and Jesus does that here as well. He calls them my sheep. Hear my voice. My sheep, listen, my sheep are the ones he cares for. And so he shows, in contrast with the hired man, the wolf, when, when the, the hired man, he sees the wolf coming, right? And the word, word indicates here that it's something he sees and studies. It's not like he just looks up and, oh, suddenly there's a wolf and runs away. He sees the wolf headed toward the flock. And instead of finding a way to defend them, he finds a way to get out of here. Okay? He says, I'm taking off. And, you know, if I leave right now before the wolf even gets here, I can be, you know, in the next county. After all, is a little money worth dying for? How different it is for the one who is actually the owner. His livelihood depends on the sheep. So that's a key thing, right? Feeding my family, uh, keeping things going in life depends on these sheep. But on top of that, he has been living with these sheep. He cares for them. He helps them lamb. He nurses them back to health. He freezes with them in the cold weather. He roasts with them in the summer sun, right? And he knows them intimately. And so it's personal. It's personal when they're endangered. Maybe more like losing one of your household pets to a predator than losing livestock. It's that way with any true shepherd and Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He is the one that truly cares for us above and beyond all that. The Jewish leaders who are simply getting recognition, power, and wealth out of the people will not risk their own skin for him. They want to keep things good with the Romans. They want to keep their influence and their power. They don't want to be shown to not have all the answers. Jesus is making a huge contrast here between them and himself as well. Because when the wolf comes, the result is chaos, disaster, and death. Uh, the result of the fleeing hand is it's missing and scattered sheep, just like God spoke about in Jeremiah 23 that we looked at last week. Remember, this is not a new problem with shepherds who really don't care about the sheep. The shepherds of that time let the sheep be attacked. They let them be scattered. And spiritually, we get a picture of people 
who should be gathered around the Good Shepherd, gathered around God, who formed them into a nation in, in Israel's case, and listening to him and saying, okay, well, the shepherd says this is what's going on, so we need to do what he says. We need to, if we want to have an abundant, full life, we need to really follow his direction and hear him and do what it is he wants us to do. And Jesus is saying, that's the same with me. I've come to be the good shepherd, and you're not really getting good direction from those who should have been your shepherds. So gather around me and hear the words of God. Gather around me and hear from the one who leads you and helped you and become what you are today. In fact, Jesus' heart as a shepherd is reflected as he interacts with the people. I want us to turn to a couple of passages that shows that. Uh, go first to Matthew chapter 9, verses 33 through 36. And here's a case where Jesus was uh, encountered by a, a man with a, a demon in him. And it says, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going all through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And in this passage, Jesus, having having performed an outstanding miracle, the kind of thing people just didn't see happen, to just simply command a demon to come out of someone. They turn around and reject him, blasphemously saying, oh, well, he can get rid of demons because he's in league with Satan. What a shocking thing. What a strong accusation. In fact, uh, Jesus... Jesus talks about the severity of that in other places. But the reject, as they reject the good shepherd, his heart breaks for those that they're hurting in their rejection. He's shown them that he truly is the good shepherd. Notice all the ways he's caring for them. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's healing them. He's, he's doing all that they need from the shepherd. But their supposed shepherds are saying, He's demon-possessed. He's driven by Satan. And it leaves them helpless. It leaves them distressed and worried. They, they don't know who to turn to. It seems as though the truth is right in front of them. But those that they've trusted say, oh no, he's bad. And it leaves them helpless. It's interesting, that second phrase that's used there, uh, some versions says, cast down. And... Uh, dispirited in my version, but it really means to be thrown down, uh, which from what I understand is just what happens to sheep sometimes. They end up on their back and they can't get off. 
and they, and they will kick, and in the hot weather, they will die just laying on their back. That's how Jesus sees these people who aren't being cared for by the shepherds. They, they thrash around, they're, 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 they're bothered, they're upset, but there's not a shepherd there to turn them over and get them back on their feet again, literally. And that's exactly what Jesus is thinking of spiritually. When they have shepherds that don't care for them, it makes them vulnerable to false teachings and philosophies. And we're in that same situation today, aren't we? How many out there have been told by people they trust that Jesus just doesn't matter? Or worse, that Jesus is wrong. Jesus will lead them astray. And it leaves them then, what do we do? Who do we believe? What's real? To the point where now we're looking around us and people don't even believe the most obvious things as real and can be fooled into thinking that's what black, that what's black is white and white is black. And I, I mean that just, I'll put that across every area. That's what Jesus saw and felt compassion for the people as he ministered to them as the good shepherd. Go to Mark chapter 6. See another example of that. Mark chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. The people saw them going, speaking of Jesus and his disciples. They're going off to be in a secluded place by themselves because Jesus has for many, many hours been caring for the people, ministering to the people. And many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it was all, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate. And I think I read further than I meant to. But where that leads is into that's the time when he feeds the 5,000. So he sees them coming. Why? Because of a great, a great hunger. In Jesus, they've seen, here's who one, one who can feed us the truth, one who can teach us what God is really like. And when Jesus left, what happened? Well, the sheep just followed, right? Where's he going? Where's the shepherd? Where, where, where can we find him? And they followed him. Followed him out into the wilderness where they had no physical food. Jesus symbolically, but real, in a real way, feeds them all bread and fish. But also feeds them the truth. And then, though Mark doesn't record it, John did. We've already seen what John recorded about how... John chapter 6, Jesus talked about being the bread that came down from heaven that is real food. And he invites them to commit themselves completely and wholly to him. And I would say if we put the two together, he's saying, as your shepherd, come to me, eat of me, by covenant be joined to me, and I will be your shepherd and I will care for you. Remember what his attitude was when he saw them before he fed them? Like sheep without a shepherd. And he desired to be their shepherd and our shepherd and care. 
As we go back to John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus heads into another reason that he is the good shepherd. There it says, I am the good shepherd. There he makes his I am statement all over again. And always remember, when God repeats himself, you better pay attention. I am the good shepherd. Well, why are you good? And I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So here, what makes this good shepherd so good? Well, for one thing, he has a mutual, mutual knowledge with the sheep. Mutual. It goes both ways. I know them, and they know me. We have a relationship that I'm interested in keeping and growing. It's experiential, and that comes from the, the Greek word that he uses, not just a knowledge in their minds, but Jesus is actually building experience, a knowledge of experience with his flock and with his individual sheep. He's proactively doing that. See, his knowledge of his sheep isn't just omniscience, which is the knowledge that God has. God knows everything, right? So does he know every one of you inside and out simply because he's God? Yes, he does. But here it also says he knows you experientially. He is involved in every part of your life to know you. As you know a friend, as you know family members that you spend time with, as you know co-workers that you work with day in and day out, God says that's the kind of relationship as shepherd I have with my sheep. Not just that I know all the facts about them, but we again have relationship. It's experiential knowledge, and it's a present tense verb. It's ongoing knowledge. Where did he get such an idea? Well, he has that kind of a relationship with his father, he says here in verse 15. Even as my father knows me, and I know the father. Isn't that amazing that God models the relationship he has with us? off of the relationship he has with his father. He wants to know you in that kind of a way. That's amazing. That Almighty God, the Son, would want to have that kind of relationship with you. So stop and think about how Jesus has a relationship with his father. You know, he's, he was always talking to his father, right? You watch Jesus. He was going out early in the morning to pray. In the midst of, of having some sort of a ministry situation, he's talking to his father. He's always doing the things that his father wants him to do. That's, that's how connected. And in, and in being a human, he made himself especially dependent on his father by the Spirit. So it's a life of knowing and being known in such a way that there's just no gap and no distance in the relationship. That's what Jesus is saying about his sheep. I want to know my sheep in such a way there's just no gap. I know what they're like. I know what they're doing. I know what their tendencies are. And I want them to know the same about me. Especially that I am trustworthy and reliable and truly will care for them. Jesus modeled 
that kind of relationship as he had a relationship with his father. But then he says, and I want to have that closeness with you. And then he says in verse 16 something very interesting. He says, I have other sheep, but you're not of this fold. Well, first of all, where, what are these other folds? And really the most satisfying answer is they are people who are going to come from the nations, from other places. Just like Micah 5.4, which we looked at last week, so we won't turn there again, but in predicting where Jesus would be born and that he would be the shepherd who would come, it also said that he would be great to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus is going to, yes, draw sheep as he, he is here from the Jewish fold, but also from all the nations of the earth, he says. And so what he's saying here to a group of Jews is shocking and it's revolutionary to those who are hearing it. Because he's claiming, I'm the good shepherd, and my flock will contain people from all over the world. From all kinds of people groups. From all kinds of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And he, I will bring them all together, all these various sheep, into one flock. I will be the one shepherd. That's what I'm about here. And though it had been, been predicted already in the Old Testament, so many had missed it. And he said, get ready for this flock. It's already beginning. But if you might notice there, he says in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock. Do you notice how Jesus claims these sheep even though he hasn't already called them? He says, they're my sheep, and when I call them, they will come. These are interesting words, and I think as we hear them, we need to be very humble about them because we probably won't understand them. Well, no, let me rephrase that. You, you and I will not understand that, those words completely. Here we have God the Son speaking here. And there's things about him when he says, I have sheep and I will call them and they will come. Well, for one thing, he is, in his omniscience, he knows who will come, right? And so, in a sense, you could say, well, he's claiming them in the future. They will believe, therefore, they're already my sheep. There are those who are already believing in the one true God among the nations who haven't heard that the Messiah has come, but they're looking for the Messiah. So you could say it could be those who, who are believing Gentiles. They are mine. I will call them and they will come. But the Bible also teaches about those who are chosen from before the foundations of the earth. And then you scratch your head and you take a deep breath and say, okay, I don't really understand that, but you've said it's true, God. But you also insist that we must choose to believe, which means we have a very real choice, right? It's not, I'm not chosen, so I can't choose. Toss all that in together and get uncomfortable with me, please. Because this is God of the universe we're talking about. If you just hear that and you say, oh, well, yeah, I understand that. 
please explain it to me, or declare yourself to be the good shepherd. Because we're getting a glimpse into his heart and mind, I think in ways that we need to humbly say, I want to understand that more and more as I grow. But I also have to be certain that I know that I'm not the shepherd. And when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I should stand back in awe and amazement and be glad that he does bring his sheep, right? Aren't you glad that he brings his sheep? And for this group, especially those who are not of the Jewish fold, or we wouldn't be here, right? He did everything that was necessary for us to hear his voice, to know his voice, and to follow him. And those who are Jewish here were probably influenced by believers who weren't Jewish, right? And so the whole flock and fold coming together as one. Aren't we glad that however it all works out in, in the Godhead, praise the Lord that he did call us and drew us and has made us into his own flock. And then he says he must bring them. It's not a question of whether he will have a flock. He will. He's going to do as the shepherd what is necessary to bring that flock to himself. And then we get to verses 17 and 18, and Jesus says some more interesting things. And here we have the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. He goes back now to laying down his life for the sheep, and he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? My father loves me because I lay down my life. Didn't the father already love Jesus? Well, yes, in fact, he did and he has. Let's just jump ahead a little bit to John chapter 17, verse 24. <clears throat> You're speaking to his father, praying before he went to the cross. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in other words, there's never been a time when the Father has not loved the Son. So why does he say back in chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Well, maybe fathers, this is a good Example, I assume you love your children. It's a God-given thing to love your children. But then there's times when your children do things, and it's the right thing, and it's the thing that you wanted them to do, and they carry through, and it's so good. Would you say, oh, I love him. I love her for doing that. Does that mean you didn't love your child before that? No, you, you love them all along, right? But then there's a sense in which the, the, their, their inner character is displayed. And their love for what is good and what is right is displayed. And you say, I love them for that. And I think that's just what Jesus is saying is the Father has a special delight in me because I lay down my, my life for the flock. Our wills are one. And me giving my life is exactly what the Father wanted as well. And he delights in that. 
and it's completely voluntary according to verse 18. No one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Now, people try to deny this truth and say that, that Jesus was just a young teacher who, who got a little too rambunctious, got in over his head, and ended up being killed. Well, you have to completely disregard what he's saying here, if that's the case. That, really, that argument is completely untrue. John makes it clear here that Jesus voluntarily said, I give my life on behalf of those who need me of sinners who need their sins forgiven and paid for. Remember, as we've gone through, any time that they tried to arrest Jesus or they tried to kill him, and it wasn't time, what happened? He just wasn't there, right? They couldn't, they couldn't lay a hand on him. They couldn't keep him. They couldn't hold him. And so when it does come time for him to die, he voluntarily, voluntarily turns himself over and goes to the cross and lays down his life. He will bear the punishment for sins completely voluntarily. But also, says the Father, delights in the fact that he lays it down so that he may take it up again. So not only, not, not only couldn't anyone take Jesus' life, but the Father was giving him the authority as a human being, to do something no other human being has ever been given the authority to do. Having died, he's given the authority to take his life back up again and live. He has the power, after he has died, fully paying the price of sin for sinful mankind. And this also delights the Father, that he will die, but then he will live. Again, there, there is that complete sovereign control of the loving shepherd and his complete unity with his father. John chapter 19, that's fully displayed when Jesus does head toward the cross. The, the authority that's given to him by his, his father. John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. says, so, so Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Jesus had been silent to this point. You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. So, Pilate, you're fooling yourself. Any authority you have only comes from my Father. Jesus understood that completely and fully. Well, Jesus wraps up his words at this, this time, and guess what happens? Everybody says, yes, you are the shepherd of Israel, right? The expected one. No, verse 19 says, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why would you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And so we have this typical divide that we've seen as Jesus speaks, when Jesus declares that I am. Some simply will not, not accept that, will not believe it, and that's that first group. It's a sin of blindness and rebellion against the good shepherd. He's revealed himself to the sheep, and they say, no, we won't have you. 
to be our shepherd. We'll keep wandering on our own. It makes no sense, but these people see only what fits their narrative and their way of getting what they want. But it's a deadly practice. It will hurt them, and it will desperately hurt those who will follow them in their example. But in verse 21, there is hope. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Enlightened by the truth and, and hearing Jesus, instead of the people saying, why do you listen to him? Notice the theme there. They're hearing, right? They're hearing Jesus. They're being told, don't listen. These may be his sheep, right? The ones that he's drawing out like the man who had been formerly blind. The truth is obvious for those who hear it, and they've also can look to the scripture. Their reasoning is: Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, maybe they know Psalm one forty-six, verse eight, which says, "The Lord or Yahweh, I am, opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord or I am raises up those who are bowed down. I am loves the righteous." Whether they were thinking those words, those, those thoughts were in their hearts. I would say at least some who heard Jesus that day were listening, were ready to follow the shepherd. So to wrap up, I'll just say, what an amazing shepherd we have, right? Incredible that he would take notice of us these sheep wandering around, these sheep without a shepherd, these sheep vulnerable to attack by Satan and the world and our own sin and the death that we deserve, the eternal punishment we deserve, and to say, no, cast your care on me. I care about you. I'm willing to pay the price for your sin. I'm willing to die in your place so that you can have new life with me. And I would just say simply, Listen to him. Follow him in all of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can, by coming to the shepherd, confess that we're sinners. Ask for forgiveness of those sins. Ask to become one of his flock. Ask to have abundant life with him forever, and he will freely grant it. Not because we were good enough, but because he loves the sheep. Lord, we just kind of touched on a little bit of what all this means. Pray that you would make it open more fully to our hearts in the days and months and years ahead. But that for everyone here, it would be as a sheep that no one would leave without saying, yes, Jesus, I want to be a part of your flock. But even as those who are part of your flock, Lord, we often wander off. We forget you, our good shepherd. So remind us, help us to rejoice that your rod and your staff comfort us. That's those, those instruments of giving direction and of, of discipline, that we would love those because they're yours. And help us to, to turn over every care to you, knowing that you care about us. Help us to take that forward. I pray for all the fathers here as well, Lord, especially today that you would help them to be shepherds of their own children. Uh, that they would be uh, have, displaying that kind of love, 
that kind of direction, that kind of care, that kind of willing sacrifice on their behalf. Uh, that, that the generation that is following them and, and maybe grandchildren, great-grandchildren as well, would, would say, oh, he pointed us to the great shepherd, the real shepherd, Jesus. And now we gladly follow him. Thank you for that privilege and opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.